Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Our text today is Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a privilege it is, Father, to have your words to read them, to study them, to meditate on them, and to trust them as absolutely true and unchanging. Lord, help us to understand them, to faithfully practice them by your Spirit who lives in us. Amen. These verses, 9 through 21, really connect back to chapter 12, verse Two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is the next step in approving the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The first we found in verses 3 through 8, which explained that we live as the body of Christ. We have been all given gifts, different gifts, for one another's good so that we can work together as Christ's body. This list of exhortations really almost reads like a recipe, doesn't it? It breaks, though, into three parts. I would call them three basic distinctions of the transformed community. These are things that make us distinct as the people of God, as a people who are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The transformed community first loves without hypocrisy. The transformed community bears others. And the transformed community overcomes evil. You could even put the word by in front of each of these things in the list. They are a list of, really, of actions. We would call them participles. But the transformed community first loves without hypocrisy. 
It loves without hypocrisy, verses 9 through 14. Now, Paul opens in verse 9 with a call for love to be genuine. Now, this word is a word we're familiar with, love, agape. This is the love that is fundamental to Christian living. It is a sacrificial love that extends to everyone. It is, that is its defining trait. That is what defines agape. It's, it's a love for friends. It's a love for enemies. It's a love for someone you've known your whole life, and it's the kind of love you have for a stranger. It's the love you have for someone who is admirable and influential in your life, and it is the love for someone who needs you and could never help you. It is a love that is all-encompassing, and that's why it's so basic and fundamental to being a Christian. The word genuine is a word that means without hypocrisy. It is the opposite of something that is fake or shallow or duplicitous. It was a word that was used sometimes to describe an object like a vase or a dish. If it had a crack in it, it was a hypocritical thing. So it looked okay on the outside, but it didn't have integrity within. It was something cracked or broken within it. So it's the opposite of something fake, putting on a mask. In other words, love is not emotion without substance. Love is not intentions without action. Love doesn't act sacrificial to mask selfish motives to gain something. What follows this call to love without hypocrisy then is a string of actions that tell us how to love this way. Now, they look like a random series of unrelated commands, but they all modify this first sentence in verse 9, telling us how. How? By abhorring evil, by holding fast to what is good, by rejoicing in hope. But they all have the force here of, of commands. So, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Genuine love is discerning. Genuine love distinguishes between evil and good. Real love calls evil evil and calls good good. This love that is without hypocrisy will show patience. It will pursue. It will seek to restore someone who has fallen into sin. But it never winks at wrongdoing. It never makes what God calls sin a matter of toleration. That is a so-called love that our culture celebrates, doesn't it? It's a kind of love that our culture enforces but that is a false, two-faced, fractured love. That is not genuine, real love. Likewise, genuine love holds fast what is good. 
That is, it supports what is good. It celebrates what is good. It defends what is good. If you've swallowed the culture's worldview, this would be nonsense to you. But the church is radically different than the world. Love one another with brotherly affection, Paul continues. Now, the word love here is actually a different word than agape, and it means to be devoted to. It's rooted in the word phileo, which is a different word for love, and really is, is not as broad as agape. It's the kind of love that you have for people that you know, friends, allies. It's combined with another word that talks about family. So both this word love and the phrase that follows brotherly affection highlight the people of God as a family. We are not a corporation. We are not an organization. We are a family. We may have structures. We may have certain things that are organized. But this is a living thing. The church is an organism, and we are a family who all share a mutual devotion to each other. God is our father. God is my father. God is your father. God is her father. God is his father. God is each of our father, and we are all brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, think of each other that way. Think of each other that way. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What's he mean by this? Well, he means preoccupy yourself with praising others. Be committed to their honor more than your own. Be ready to recognize others' gifts, contributions, sacrifices, be faster to give credit than to take credit. This is also radically countercultural, isn't it? Where achievement is based on self-promotion, putting yourself forth, taking credit for things, showing what you can do. Now, this is a command to the church for relationships within the body. But think about if we did this even in our marriages, those of us who are married. If we were faster to recognize what our spouse does and accomplishes before ours, before what we've done. Outdo one another in showing honor. Not slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Loving one another well requires energy and diligence. This zeal is not just emotional excitement. It is the working hard to love in such a way that is free of hypocrisy. That requires diligence. That requires being deliberate. It requires work, effort. Don't be lazy. Don't fall behind in zeal. Be fervent 
in spirit. This word fervent means to be on fire or to boil. And though our ESVs, our English Standard Versions, say in spirit, this is probably the Holy Spirit. That's the way I understand it. In other words, be on fire in the spirit or by the spirit. By the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, burn with zeal. For Christ, for the gospel, for the church, for worship, for holiness in life, and for service. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. This is one of those usages of this word. We saw the gift Back in verses 3 through 8, if your gift is serving, then serve. But this is one of those usages where he's just talking about anybody who, who lives for God in God's presence is serving the Lord. This is a life that delights in God's priorities, a life that is dedicated to his purposes. It is an echo, really, of verse 1 in chapter 12, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living holy, acceptable to God. That is serving the Lord. I think Paul writes this because he knows it's easy to flag in the race. It's easy to to give up, to lose stamina, to let down your guard. In fact, this is an apt encouragement for believers who have been Christians for a long time. To remain on fire, stoke the embers. Paul continues then with three related keys to ongoing faithfulness, hope, endurance, and prayer. Rejoice in hope. Paul is saying, find joy through the confidence that you have in God's promises. Now, where has Paul talked about God's promises? Back in chapter 8, right? The promise of glory, that we will be glorified, that we've been justified, and that means an eternity in glory. And we live in the in-between, and in that in-between, the hope and the confidence we have in God's promises to bring us to glory... That nothing can separate us from the love, from his love, ought to bring joy. That we are to find joy there, rejoice in. Be patient in tribulation. This word be patient means to bear up underneath, to endure. We are to endure all of the obstacles and heartaches and injustices in life. We are to be constant in prayer, communing with God, and depending on him for the grace and the strength that we need. In the in-between, between being justified and being adopted as one of God's children and being glorified in the end, prayer is the connection. Prayer is the connection. Be constant in prayer. What he means is that all all of your life ought to be immersed in prayer. Obviously, he doesn't mean we have to go around muttering and murmuring all the time. 
in praying. Blah, 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 excuse me. Blah, 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 blah. Right? He's saying that as everything in life presents itself, every situation, every relationship, decisions, that we are to be in prayer, that we commune with God about these things. So rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This genuine love also means contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Now, this is a different word than the word contributes, which we saw listed as a gift back in verse 8. That we also said means to be giving. The word contribute here in verse 13 actually comes from another word that we're, most of us are probably familiar with, and that's koinonia. To fellowship is usually how we think of that word. So it's, it's this fellowship or partnership, meaning to share in common. In other words, partner with others with the goal of sharing things with them. Meeting their needs in a partnership. This is material contribution. It's money, food, clothing, maybe transportation. And notice that Paul doesn't speak here of giving to the needy in general, but he specifies contribute to the needs of the saints. And I think the Bible sets a priority here for us. The church is to be concerned for the needs of the struggling and on, uh, those on hard times, but the priority are those in the community. The transformed community functions differently toward each other because that's primarily in Paul's focus here is our relationships with one another. The priority are those in the church, in the community, the needs of the saints. We are to take care of each other. There's a special privilege of partnership and sharing with other believers that marks this genuine love which marks a transformed community. So contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is literally love of strangers, which doesn't necessarily mean unbelievers, non-Christians. It might include them, but it does mean someone you don't know Hospitality is the idea of bringing somebody in or, or treating someone well that you don't necessarily know. Take initiative in showing hospitality. That's what Paul's saying here. Seek to show it. Take initiative in showing this hospitality. This could be providing food and drink on Sunday mornings. It could be making guests and strangers feel welcome. Opening your home to someone who needs food or shelter. In the New Testament, inns, hotels, motels, these kinds of institutions were pretty scarce. They were very often expensive and they were occasionally dangerous. Traveling believers, whether that's on business uh, for their livelihood or whether it was for purposes of ministry, would often rely on other Christians for lodging, 
So they would move from city to city and travel, and they would go to the church in that city they were visiting, and believers would take them in. As an example, the Apostle John praises one particular leader in the church named Gaius for his practice of hospitality. This is found in one of those little one-page letters at the back of your New Testament, 3 John. In 3 John verses 5 and 6, John writes, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. So these strangers are ones who have benefited from Gaius's hospitality, his love for people he doesn't know, but they are obviously believers because they are going before the church and giving testimony to how their needs have been met. They have received hospitality from this leader in the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And so the hospitality often not only included lodging and and providing meals, but sending them off with a with a sack lunch on their way. Maybe some, a little bit of cash to help them on the journey. That is showing hospitality. Perhaps then this last item under love without hypocrisy, and I know I'm moving through these. This is just a list, isn't it? Okay, I'm just trying to expand on them for you. This last item under love without hypocrisy is, I think, probably the most radical, and it's the only one that is a true imperative. It's the only one that is, if the grammar in the grammar of the text is actually a command. The others have the force of commands, but this is actually a command. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. The word persecute. Now, it's certainly not a word we would use to describe how a fellow believer might treat us. Now, other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, can wrong us. They can mistreat us. We wrong each other all the time. That's why the New Testament is so full of exhortations to us to forgive each other and to bear with each other, to make things right, to make restitution, to repent, to reconcile with one another. But this word persecute is not a word that we would use within the community. That is reserved for how someone outside the church might treat any one of us. Or might treat us as a church body. But I think Paul's point is this. Genuine love that is whole without cracks, without double standards, without duplicity, that kind of genuine love will respond to persecutors in the same consistent way it responds to friends. With blessing and not cursing. To bless a persecutor is to speak well toward someone who speaks or acts evilly toward you. It is to be gracious in the face of antagonism. It is to not return 
the cutting comment. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples, and so he says to us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. And love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Paul is simply pulling right out of the Gospels. He's pulling right out of the, the direct teaching of Jesus. That was and is still revolutionary. And it is another mark of Christian community. Unconditional blessing. We don't just speak well to those who like us. We respond even to enemies. That is genuine love. And even though here persecution comes from outside the church, I still think at this point Paul's concern, his focus is the life within the body. As we look at each other, as we love each other, as we do all of these things that Paul has listed here, we look at each other and say, hey, this is how we together respond to persecution that comes from outside. So the transformed community loves without hypocrisy. Secondly, the transformed community bears others. The transformed community bears others. Verses 15 and 16. Now, when I say bears others, I don't mean bearing with as in putting up with others. We do do that and we do need to do that. But I mean carrying others. I mean lifting and carrying, bearing others up on our shoulders as it were through care understanding, and active empathy in both joy and sorrow. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, this is one of those rare places that I, I wish you could see in the Greek text how Paul puts this because it rhymes. It's a poetic, it's a play on words. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because the word rejoice and the word weep rhyme. And there's a rhythm to this. As members of the same body, when one member is given reason to celebrate, we all know joy. When a baby is born, when a new job is found, when prayer is answered, when illness is overcome, when the lost come to Christ and find forgiveness and new life. As members of the same body, when one member suffers, we all hurt. We all rejoice and we all hurt when there is loss. When the illness is not overcome. When a child rebels and chooses a path of destruction when there is cancer, when there is moral failure, when death strikes. We weep with each other. We rejoice and we weep. There is a delightful responsibility 
that we all share to participate in each other's ups and downs in this life, to carry each other by sharing in joy and in sorrow. Verse 16 pushes us even deeper because you cannot see it in English here, but these three sentences are all connected by a repeated word. In verse 16, those sentences are, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. And the word that links each of those three sentences together is the word think. It is the same word that we saw in verse 3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So Paul is picking up this word again. He's talking about how we perceive, how we view things. Think with sober judgment. He uses it three times in verse 3. He uses it three times again here in verse 16. So this live in harmony with one another is think the same toward each other. Which doesn't mean we always agree on everything, but it means we share a common mindset like a football team or maybe a military force, we are all focused on the same goal and working together to achieve that same objective. We think the same way. We are all aligned to the same things. We are all justified. We are all headed for glory. We are all enduring until that day. We are all secure in God's love. We're all on mission, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation, right? Think the same toward each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. This be haughty is really do not think highly. Do not think in an exalted way. In other words, of yourself, Paul is again reemphasizing like he did in verse 3, don't think highly and exalted in such exalted ways of yourself, but associate with the lowly, which could mean take on lowly tasks, or it could mean associate, involve yourself with lowly people. And I think the second here makes more sense. He's talking about rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. He's talking about relationships. Don't think more highly about yourself. Invest yourself. Involve yourself with those who are lowly. And by that he means, in other words, don't just pursue, serve, and hang out with those who are like you, who boost your standing in other people's eyes. Don't just spend time with those who measure up, but invest in, involve yourself with those without influence, those without means. In the transformed community, there are no haves and have-nots. 
Likewise, humility doesn't see itself as superior to others because of learning or discernment or maturity, wisdom. Never be wise in your own sight. Do not become wise, but it's the same word, think. Do not become wise in your own sight. Humility acknowledges its limits. It acknowledges or recognizes its need to learn, to grow. It doesn't become impressed with its own perceptiveness. I think that's what Paul's getting at. So if in the world there is strife and animosity because of arrogance and ambition, if in the world there is jockeying for position, favoritism, backbiting, manipulation, self-promotion, being a transformed community means bearing one another with empathy and care, as well as having a mindset of humble harmony. We are to bear others. Finally, the transformed community overcomes evil. The transformed community overcomes evil. Verse 17, Paul now does shift his focus from the relationships within the church to our relationships outside of the church. And he's, he's keying in on one facet of that relationship. Now, he could be talking about evil in the church. As I said earlier, we do at times wrong each other. Okay, but again, this is Paul's giving a broad perspective, and he's talking about evil done against us from those outside of the church. Overcoming evil. Evil is evil that comes against the transformed community from outside. So whether individually or corporately as a church body, we overcome evil in a radically different way than the world does. According to verses 17 through 21, there are two typical, might even say expected, and very enticing responses to evil when we as a transformed people are acted evilly against. And that is retaliation and revenge. Retaliation and revenge. Frankly, again, these verses don't need a lot of explanation, but they are the hardest things to live out, aren't they? Repay... No one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, or what is beautiful, what is attractive in the sight of all. There is something attractive and admirable, even to the world, about someone who endures evil that is done to them without retaliating against it. We recognize that kind of spirit and magnanimity in somebody's soul and character when they endure wrong that's done against them with grace. 
We are to not retaliate. Now, you might think in very extreme terms, something very harsh. But where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to not retaliating means we don't retaliate against thoughtless neighbors or rude drivers or spiteful coworkers or hostile authorities or abusive words. We are not to retaliate against attacks on our faith or our rights. Now, it's not to say there's not a right time or way to defend them. There is, to give explanation. There is a time to pursue justice against crime. There's a time to speak out against wrongdoing. Okay. But we're not to retaliate. Someone strikes us and we strike back. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Think Paul is saying, don't live in such a way that validates someone's reason to dislike you or that justifies the attack in the first place. Now, it's not always possible. It's not always possible. There are always some who will force conflict. There are always those who will refuse to live in peace. Sometimes your faith, your convictions, your love for Jesus Christ will bring you smack into conflict with others. But as justified, hope-filled, spirit-adopted, transformed people, we are not to retaliate. We're not to retaliate. Or take vengeance. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Literally, it says, leave it to the wrath. Certainly, he's talking about God's wrath. This is God's wrath. But the wrath is describing an event. And that event is the execution of God's wrath when God sits in judgment. Don't avenge yourselves, but leave it for that time of wrath. That would probably be a better way to fill out what Paul is saying here than the wrath of God, is leave it for the time of wrath. There is a designated time for that. Revenge is a step beyond retaliation. When we're wronged, there is always the temptation to pay back. Eye for an eye, tit for tat. But avenging ourselves is taking it upon ourselves to mete out our own justice and judgment on the evildoer. This does not have in mind seeking justice against a criminal action necessarily. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are times when we ought to prosecute wrongdoing. The laws of the land sometimes demand that. Certainly, our society and our culture exists because of law and order, and in fact, the very next 
text, passage, gets at that, about how Christians are to respond to governing authorities and why God has instituted governing authorities. Paul here, when he says, don't avenge yourselves, is not necessarily talking about those times when legal prosecution against crime ought to be pursued. Someone robs your home, you should report it. And if they are apprehended, arrested, they should be prosecuted. If someone breaks into your car, if someone abuses a child, we don't say, oh, well, we don't avenge ourselves. No, we, we prosecute those things. Okay? There are laws in place against those things. But let's think through some different examples. Someone vandalizes your house or perhaps this facility and spray paints die Christian on it. What should be our response? We should report it to the police. What if they catch the person? Should we prosecute them? Maybe not. I mean, we shouldn't avenge ourselves, even through using the legal means or law. There are times when we say, okay, oh, that's the person who did it. You know what? We love you. In fact, we got a Thanksgiving dinner coming up this Saturday night. Why don't you come? What about our own mailbox right out here that was stolen two weeks ago? What if we find the person? Well, if the person was just stealing mailboxes and they've stolen several in the, in the community, probably, I would say, we probably ought to prosecute, be part of that prosecution, give testimony, whatever it is. That's criminal action. It's actually a violation of federal law. But if we find out they did it because we're a church and they hate Christians... I'm more apt to say, okay, great, we've replaced the mailbox. Why don't you come to Thanksgiving dinner, right? So that's the difference, but that's when it comes to wisdom and judgment and understanding, and according to verse 2 of Romans 12, discerning what is the will of God, right? What is good and acceptable and perfect. So never avenge yourselves, leave it for the wrath of God. Paul grounds the reason for this in the scriptures, first in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and then in Proverbs chapter 25. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 32 verse 35. Do you notice that the basis for not enacting vengeance is not the imago dei. It's not the image of God in every person. The reason for not seeking to avenge ourselves is not God's love for his enemies. The basis for not enacting vengeance is God's own sovereign vengeance. If we take vengeance into our own hands, we usurp God's justice. We usurp his prerogative, his divine right to judge every person, all of mankind. The next statement in verse 20 confirms this, though on the surface it seems to contradict it, but follow me. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So instead of vengeance, show kindness. Respond exactly oppositely to how you were treated. Now, we would hope that in doing that, someone might come to the gospel, right? We see that happen at times where someone expects vengeance and reciprocation. They meet forgiveness and love and the heart is broken. But in this context, we have to let the scriptures say what it says. We are to feed our enemies if they're hungry. We're to give them something to drink if they're thirsty. Why? For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this is somewhat of an enigmatic statement, but it simply pictures God's judgment. For example, David in Psalm 140 verse 10 cries out for justice, let burning coals fall upon them, let them be cast into fire, into miry pits no more to rise. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In that proverb, the Bible is teaching us that there are inevitable and inescapable consequences to immorality, specifically sexual immorality. Can you pursue sexual immorality and not get burned? No. Can someone carry, load up inside their jacket a bunch of burning coals and expect not their, for their clothes not to catch on fire? Or to walk across coals and not have their feet scorched? Burning coals might transfer heat slowly, but they inescapably ignite. By responding to evil, what? By responding to evil with kindness, you prepare people for God's vengeance. You set it into motion. Now, if this sounds unchristian, if this sounds kind of backwards, it sounds kind of counterintuitive to Christianity, doesn't it? But let's look at Luke 18. Don't think that Paul for a second is taking Jesus to task when Jesus says, love your enemies. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus tells a parable. We usually come to this parable regarding prayer, and it, it does refer to prayer, but it is a specific prayer for a specific purpose. And he told them a parable, this is Luke 18, verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now this is a corrupt judge. When Jesus says he doesn't fear God or man, that means he has no sense of moral right and wrong. He does whatever, whatever seems to work for him. He doesn't care about justice, he doesn't care about people, and he doesn't fear God. 
But this widow keeps coming to him over and over and says, give me justice against my adversary, someone oppressing her. Verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I think my kids have read this parable because <laughs> they don't stop asking sometimes over and over and over. And they go, I know Luke 18. If I keep asking dad, okay. But Jesus is making a point then because this godless, hardened, self-centered judge will eventually break down, verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give what? Justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? Jesus is creating this contrast. If even an unrighteous, godless, hardened judge will eventually break down... What about your God, your Father, who has called you and chosen you? How much more quickly will he who loves you and loves justice, will he not respond when you continue to cry out to him? I tell you, verse 8, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And what Jesus is saying there is what Paul is saying here. This is Paul's purpose. It's about enduring. Jesus says, don't give up. Keep praying. God will eventually bring justice to those who oppress you. The very same Jesus who said, love your enemies. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, continue to cry out to God and continue to respond to evil that is done against you with kindness. The end result, even though we may desire someone to come to Christ for their heart to be broken, we want them to know God's love, the end result is you are preparing them for judgment. If they don't repent, if they don't see the gospel, if they don't come to Christ, you are heaping burning coals on their heads. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner explains it well when he writes, when we believers are mistreated abused, and our rights are infringed upon, the desire for retaliation burns within us because we have been treated unjustly. We are not to give in, however, to the desire to get even. Rather, we are to place the fate of our enemies firmly in God's hands, realizing that he will repay any injustice on the last day. Believers will not be able to conquer feelings of revenge unless we know that ultimately there is justice, that God will set all accounts right. We would fall prey to retaliation in the present if we did not know that God would vindicate us in the future. Thus, the recognition that God will judge our enemies is crucial for overcoming evil with good. That's exactly right. Which, of course, is Paul's conclusion here in verse 21. Do not, become, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's 
being overcome by evil means being overcome by the temptation to retaliate and avenge ourselves. It doesn't mean being destroyed by evil. You can't be destroyed by evil. That's Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Height, nor dead, nor angels, nor demons, nor evil, nor good. Nothing. You can't be overcome by evil other than to retaliate and seek vengeance on your own. Overcoming evil is doing good in response until God the judge arrives. Until God sets all things right. And God takes his own vengeance. This is countercultural. We are a transformed community. And frankly, the only way we can live this way, as verses 9 through 21 lay out here, is to have our minds renewed, isn't it? It's the only way. To have our minds renewed and to love one another and to live this out. Father, we know that in this life you are with us. Holy Spirit, you dwell within us. Lord, you have sealed us for the day of redemption. This is what you have called us to as your people. And it is only by your power and your grace that we can live this out. Lord, I rejoice I rejoice in seeing so many of these things lived out here at Crossway Fellowship. The community, the love, the hospitality, the contribution, the same-mindedness. We are not perfect. And Lord, we need to grow in many of these things. We need to be more faithful. And more challenges will come. But Lord, I rejoice that as I, I think about this church body, Lord, that we are aiming ourselves to please you, to be a family. And that in being this transformed community, Lord, we are a light. Lord, may your gospel go forth. May your name be glorified. We ask this because of your great and terrible name. Amen. Amen.